Welcome to the Doll Podcast. I'm your host, Louisa Maxwell. Madame Alexander has been making dolls for over 100 years. The key to her success was innovation and quality. My guest is museum curator Sarah Woodbury, who has just coordinated a new exhibition at the Barry Art Museum entitled Fashioning Innovation, Madame Alexander at 100. The exhibition celebrates the centenary of the Madame Alexander Doll Company and its founder, Beatrice Alexander. Sarah Woodbury, welcome to the Doll Podcast. Thank you so much, Louisa. It's a pleasure to be here, as always. Well, it's wonderful to be able to speak to you again, especially about Madame Alexander. She has just such an amazing legacy. So let's start by introducing the Barry Art Museum, the cultural hub of the Old Dominion University, located in Virginia, USA. The museum displays fine art in all its forms, painting, sculpture, glass, and a superb collection showcasing the art of doll making. Sarah is a scholar and curator dedicated to expanding how museums define art and provide access to it. We're delighted that she's bringing her unique perspective on dolls as guest curator at the Barry Art Museum. I can't wait to hear about your new exhibition, as Madame Alexander is a key figure in doll making. The story of Madame Alexander is the story of the American dream. She came from a family of Jewish immigrants who settled in New York, where her father had a doll's hospital. She often witnessed the heartbreak children went through when a doll patient could not be saved. Beatrice was determined to create an unbreakable doll. Do you think, Sarah, this is what inspired her to become an innovator in the field of doll making, her search to make children happy? Oh, I definitely think that it inspired her development as a doll designer and professional. I mean, those early experiences of seeing these dolls come into the hospital in pieces left a very deep effect on her. And throughout her life, Madame Alexander talked about the special bond between girls and their dolls as they're growing up, how the doll is both a friend as well as a plaything and a teaching tool. And she wanted to create a quality doll that could fill all those roles throughout a girl's lifetime. So yes, I agree. So throughout the company's history, how did Madame Alexander innovate and use new materials to make her dolls? Did she find something that was unbreakable? Eventually, yes. So throughout her career, Madame Alexander did experiment with a variety of materials. Her earliest dolls were made from cloth, actually, that she mold-pressed to create three-dimensional features. Then in the 1930s and 1940s, she created some beautiful dolls with composition, which is a mixture of sawdust and glue that's been in use for a long time. But probably the innovation she's best known for today is her use of plastics, which she started experimenting with in the late 1940s, right at the end of World War II. And that material provided both the flexibility and the strength she was looking for, as well as a surface to absorb hand-painted details. So that ended up becoming the material that she really embraced from the 1950s onward. 
She was also a very savvy businesswoman, and she created licensed products that featured the stars of the day from film and pop culture. She created these fantastic dolls, the Gone with the Wind series. She had Scarlett and Melanie, and they're really beautiful dolls with extraordinary costumes. What celebrity dolls will we spot at the exhibition? Have any been included? So, if you visit the exhibition at the Barry Art Museum, you will find two dolls representing both Queen Elizabeth and Princess Margaret inside the exhibition itself.、Uh, those are from the early 1950s, and they're absolutely beautiful. Outside of the gallery, we do have some additional Madame Alexander dolls from later on, the 1980s and whatnot, and we do have an example of Scarlett O'Hara on view. But in terms of the historical 1950s material, definitely check out the princesses. Of course, Madame was making dolls at the time of the coronation, so I believe there was special displays in the United States created by Madame recreating the splendor. Of the young royal princesses, and you know, we have to remember at the time they came on the scene post World War II, wearing the new look and really embracing modernity. We look on princesses as something away in a tower, but Queen Elizabeth, the late Queen Elizabeth, really did embrace modernity and try and say, "I'm also a modern mother as well as a modern monarch, and I have." A modern wardrobe. Madame Alexander again really caught the essence of that, didn't she? She really did. I learned about that coronation set recently from Rodney Waller, and it was fascinating. the The amount of meticulous detail put into these pieces, and then using those dolls essentially as a facsimile for the actual coronation, because. You couldn't record it live the way you could today, so the dolls were essentially acting out what was happening in terms of the major strokes. And I think that's absolutely fascinating. These dolls that aren't just playthings, but are enacting historical events for viewers at large. They were viewed by you know millions because we have to remember too that the coronation in Great Britain, anyway, it was the big event that got people renting or buying televisions. It was、oh, yes. televised. It was a huge driver of the media at the time. The television media people gathered together around television sets, and it was really an amazing thing in bringing the coronation to a wider audience. And Madame Alexandra's dolls were used in the United States as part of the whole campaign rolled out to discuss the coronation in the media. And that's an amazing thing for dolls to do. When we look back on Madame Alexandra's career, as we said, she hit so many of these high points in film and in history. With all that she accomplished and all that she did, we can't forget that she did all these things at a time when a woman heading up a company was still a rarity. Beatrice, she must have experienced some prejudice. How did she overcome this difficulty as she progressed in her business? Well, she did experience prejudice. There's, there's no denying that, both as as a woman and as a Jewish person in the early 20th century. But the way she dealt with it was she developed this really assertive personality. She knew what she wanted. She was committed to quality, and she was persistent. But the other thing that was important to her professional career was her family,、uh, especially her husband Philip Berman. He 
was largely the financial side of, and the logistical side of the operation. So he handled a lot, a lot of that part of the business, which enabled Madame Alexander to focus more on the creative and the design aspects. And it was that partnership really that helped her become so successful, as well as a willingness and a determination to succeed that was really ingrained in her from a young age. She created and sold her first dolls during World War I, when her stepfather could no longer work on repairing porcelain dolls due to embargoes happening with World War I. He could no longer access that material. So to help save the, the family and its company, she created cloth dolls of Red Cross nurses. And that was really the genesis of her business. The official start date is 1923, but you can easily make an argument that she's working as early as 1918 on selling dolls and doing it for the family. And that mindset influenced her her whole life and really gave her so much of her motivation. She's not just doing this for her own success, but for her family's well-being. Do you think that was the driver, that wonderful energy of the team, of the family, her husband, all of them working together? Do you think that helped support her in 1918 if you tried to open a bank account or do business? It, it was such an unusual thing at the time, and yet she has totally flouted convention and just sails straight through, but I bet she still had to face up to some big problems along the way. Oh, she definitely did. I know that she had difficulties securing the initial loan for her business, for example, because she was a woman and the bank was hesitant to give her that money. From what I understand, she made a point of repaying that loan as quickly as possible and reminding the bank repeatedly that she had done that in terms of, well, you got what you paid for. Uh, but certainly, I believe that family and especially the support of her husband played a critical role in her achieving success. And she knew that. There's a famous story about her when she requested her husband, Philip, to join the company full time. He was doing other business with a hat company, but Beatrice had decided that he needed to work for her full time. And when he expressed hesitation, she apparently threatened divorce because she knew she needed that partnership and gave some quip that uh, people remember now along the lines of, well, I can always find another husband. But I think beneath the humor, there was this, this conviction that she needed that partnership, and that definitely shaped the business and its success. And the vet, Philip was willing to take a chance with her on that and go with it speaks to his character as well. It's so good to get personal insight into someone like Madame Alexander and her team, and also to see that she was a wife and a mother and a working woman at this time in history. To have such longevity as a company, Madame Alexander must have kept her finger on the pulse of what parents and children wanted. What were some of her most successful dolls? So, one series that's always stood out to me, because it's so much a product of its time, are the Dion Quintuplets. Oh, yes. So, for... I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with the Dion's, but for those who aren't, the Dion's were... Quintuplets born in rural Quebec in the 1930s, and they were global celebrities because they were the first known 
surviving quintuplets. And there were five little girls. And for years, the Canadian government sponsored their lives, essentially, by setting up a special house where they would live and they would go out at scheduled times of the day and be on view to the public. And a lot of merchandising developed out of the Dion quintuplets, including dolls created by Madame Alexander. When she heard about the births, she recognized an unparalleled opportunity and she went for it with Really, it's a brilliant marketing strategy. So she thought, there are five girls, five dolls. I will distinguish them with five different colors. The dolls themselves are all the same, but you have to have one of each color, right? I mean, you can't just have four of the five quintuplets. And she did this for every series of the dolls, uh, not only just the dolls themselves, but their accessories. They came with bassinets, cradles. I've seen Ferris wheel designs with the different colors demarcating them. Now, I think to 21st century viewers, the Dion quintuplets are rather peculiar and might even come across as a bit exploitative, but it's important to remember that they're very much of their time for a couple of reasons. One, this is the 1930s. Sideshow attractions are still an acceptable form of entertainment, so going and looking at people who are different from you is still in practice at this time. But more broadly, the world was in a global depression, and there was this real sense of general despair. But like the films of Shirley Temple, the Dion quintuplets embodied hope for a lot of people. You know, having the opportunity to see these little girls living these seemingly perfect lives, even if it was ultimately a construction, a fiction, Seeing them with their beautiful clothes and their toys and this lovely house, that gave people a sense of hope and this, this sense that you could provide or at least experience this ideal childhood. Even if you couldn't provide it for your own children necessarily, you could take part in it, you could observe it. So the Dion quintuplets to me really encapsulate this specific time in history. And that's why I think they're so interesting. Plus, they're a brilliant marketing strategy. I'm fascinated by the Dion quintuplets myself because I've, while researching Madame Alexander, I uh, have seen these amazing babies. And can you imagine you're in the toy store and mom thinks you're just going to buy one of the dolls <laughs> and you're like, I have to have them all. It's oh, a child's it, it, dream. It really is. <laughs> but it was an amazing marketing strategy, but it is a moment in time. I believe it is one of her licensed products, isn't it? Yes, um, it's one of the first licenses she got. One of her major regrets in life was that she did not take out a license on Shirley Temple. Ideal Toy Company beat her to that. Apparently, it was her daughter who brought Shirley Temple to her attention. But at that point, Temple's star was still very much on the ascendancy. And Alexander was like, oh, I, I don't know who this, this character is or whatnot. And within a couple of years, Shirley Temple's popularity had just exploded. And Alexander remarked later in life that, yes, that's one of the few times I missed out on an opportunity. But the Dion quintuplets, once they were born, that offered her a way to get into that and arguably be even more successful financially because there were five of them. And what I always appreciated about that strategy is how simple it was. You know, by simply changing the color on each of the dolls, you're able to multiply it. And it also speaks to her acumen about manufacturing. Yes. Because one of the successes, if you have a company, 
I mean, we tend to think of dolls as precious and individual. But if you're making dolls and you have a company, you have to be practical. And this is such a practical strategy for dressing and producing the dolls. But it is sad she missed out on Shirley Temple. In my own collection, I have a Shirley Temple doll that my mom had. And she means a lot to me. And, uh, you know, it's a really wonderful thing. They're wonderful films, and it's wonderful all this history that dolls can bring to us. Oh, yeah. I I mean, they were... I think I learned about them as as a teenager through the Antiques Roadshow, of all things. Yeah, always. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much publicity on them. I mean, they really were global celebrities of the time. The Antiques Roadshow is amazing because even, you know, in every generation, that's how we learn about so much stuff, Mm -hmm. all -hmm. kinds of things. But it's amazing. People are fascinated by the minutiae of history. And the objects we used to love and used every day. Definitely, because I think that's what makes history real for the majority of us. I mean, most of us are not going to be a part of so-called major events, at least not in a direct way. But these objects, they remind us that ordinary people were there too, that they lived through these events in their own way. And I think that provides that relatable connection. With so many dolls and errors to choose from, how did you choose what to put in the exhibition? Because she's just a roll call of amazing dolls. So you're exactly right. Uh, One of the major considerations was practical. So whenever we can, we'd like to build our exhibitions off of the permanent collection, especially with the dolls, because we do have such wonderful holdings through Carolyn Barry. So we started off with our collection of Madame Alexander dolls, which included three examples from the mystery series, as well as a sissy. And there was another doll, but I can't think. I think it was a Cynthia. Who's Cynthia? uh, Cynthia was an African-American doll uh, that was produced in the 50s. She's not in the exhibition space itself because she's actually on our materials shelf. So we would have had to swap around a a lot more objects, but she is on view. A really interesting doll. She was only in production for about a year. I think she came in about three different sizes, and she has this beautiful dress with this light blue and cream color. I know the Barry Museum has an extraordinary collection, and we draw some of these wonderful dolls from the collection of Carolyn Barry. But do you also bring dolls together from other collectors? Absolutely. And the Madame Alexander show was no exception. So if you go into the gallery, you will see a combination of the Barry Art Museum's permanent collection and loans from Phyllis Grube. She is a prominent doll collector based in North Carolina, and she provided about half of the show's contents. And they're absolutely exquisite. Like the Barry Art Museum collection, they're also from the 1950s, so focusing on quality plastic dolls from the early to mid-1950s and including different examples. And then in addition to the gallery show, over the course of the exhibition, the museum will hold special events in conjunction with exhibitions. And I know for one of their recent events, they actually invited local collectors from around Norfolk to bring in their examples of Madame Alexander dolls for an evening event. So in addition to the temporary exhibition upstairs, the museum was filled with Alexander dolls from the Norfolk community. And it was really quite special. 
What does the exhibition Fashioning Innovation, Madame Alexandra at 100, tell us about the evolution of doll making over the past 100 years? How did dolls change over that 100-year period? Oh, they changed in so many different ways, while also intriguingly remaining the same in terms of the types of issues they're discussing. From a material standpoint, they certainly change with respect to technology, transitioning from cloth to composition to plastic. Madame Alexander was at the forefront of helping the modern age become, for better or worse, a plastic age. And we still see that happening with doll design today, with Barbie, with Bratz, with Monster High, with whatever the kids are into these days. There's also this, this link between fashion and culture that carries through the 20th century with doll manufacture. And it's not so much that there's a, a seismic shift in terms of change, but that the interests that people have, dolls reflect that as it moves through the century. So they embody what matters to people in terms of how they dress or how they choose to present themselves with respect to their identity. And you see this especially when you look at, say, Sissy in 1955, and then Barbie's multiple identities through, from 1959 onward, and how she embodies these changing aspirations and dreams for girls. Of all the dolls in this exhibition, and you had to curate, you had to choose, which is your favorite? Oh, that is so hard, because... Viewing a Madame Alexander doll in person is a magical experience. I had seen them in print before, in catalogs and whatnot, but to see them up in person and to look at those exquisite details, I mean, especially on the mystery series, these handcrafted details, tool gowns and silk flowers, and they're, they're just absolutely stunning. But if I had to pick one... Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's, it's so hard because they're all so interesting in so many different ways. But if I absolutely had to pick one, I might go with the ballerina, actually. Oh, I love I'm not the a ballerina. I used I'm to not have a... one. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, way back when. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a dancer myself. I, I never have been. But the details on that costume are just so exquisite. And what I also love about it, Rodney Waller and I talked about this when he visited a few weeks ago, is that Madame Alexander engaged not only literature, but art. And in Dolls Like the Ballerina, she's looking at the paintings of Degas and his contemporaries. So it's, again, emphasizing how these dolls are very much engaged in culture and society at large. And they're not just playthings. But they're also an introduction to the world itself. And that was very much what Alexander intended. She saw the doll as a gateway to the wider world of society and culture. They're a beautiful introduction for any child. One thing I'd like to ask you about, you mentioned the mystery dolls, and I'm not familiar with the mystery dolls. What are the mystery dolls? So that's a great question. They're called the mystery dolls because they weren't advertised in the catalogs. They were a series of dolls that were created for display in department stores, showcasing the absolute best of Madame Alexander, but they weren't for sale in the catalogs, per se, so there aren't a huge number of them out there. And it was essentially showcasing Madame Alexander's mastery of fashion across history, as it was six dolls 
dressed in different historical and contemporary fashions. So you had a Victorian bride, for example. You had the ballerina that's channeling the 19th century paintings of Degas. But you also had contemporary evening gowns from the 50s and the late 40s. I believe they were made in the late 40s, early 50s, but anyway, mid-century. And they're absolutely exquisite. Uh, they didn't have names assigned to them at the time, so they've been given names by collectors subsequently. And that adds to their allure. But what's remarkable about them was that through these dolls, Madame Alexander was awarded a medal from the Fashion Academy of New York. So these dolls are showcasing her skills as a fashion designer. And so they're fascinating both as doll history, but also as fashion history in the post-war era. Do you have any of the mystery dolls in the exhibition? Oh, of course. So we have three on view right now. They are all part of the permanent collection at the Barry Art Museum. There is the Victorian bride, who has this beautiful muscle and train behind her. We've got a doll in a 1950s evening gown that uh, is kind of a champagne color with a black lace covering over it and these delectably long lashes uh, on her face. And then there is the ballerina, and she is covered with these handmade silk flowers as well as rhinestones. She's just absolutely exquisite. I would love to see those dolls, and I hope we'll be able to share some images on our website in case people can't get to the Barry Art Museum. So what do you think is the secret of Madame Alexander's dolls' longevity and success? I think it's their quality, not only in terms of their construction, but how beautifully they capture the eras they represent, how eloquently they speak to the interests of their particular time, whether it's the Dion quintuplets, whether it's the popularity of Gone with the Wind and Scarlett O'Hara, whether it's the coronation dolls and Queen Elizabeth and Princess Margaret. They encapsulate these different interests and concerns among the public, and they do it so beautifully in their construction, in their fashion and whatnot. And they just present this exquisite embodiment of the past that captures the imagination. I really, I have to agree. That is the perfect way of summing up a wonderful conversation about this exhibition. Sarah, how long is the exhibition going to be on for? So this exhibition will be on view through December 31st, 2023. We'll give some uh, links online to some more information, some more information about Sarah and all her biography, and also about the Madame Alexandra exhibition at the Barry Museum. Of course, we just want to tell everyone that this is a two-part podcast, and next time we will be discussing Sissy, Madame Alexandra's high fashion doll. And we'll also be debating Sissy's influence on Barbie doll. So that should be an interesting show. In the meantime, Sarah, tell us the dates of the exhibition and how we can find out more. The exhibition will be on view now through December 31st, 2023. If you're able to attend in person, I highly recommend it. But if you can't, we do have 3D tours available on the Barry Art Museum's website. And then we will also have links to the exhibition and photographs on the Doll Podcast. Thank you, Sarah. And I look forward to talking to you next time on the Doll Podcast when we'll be discussing Madame Alexandra Sissy and what role she plays in the exhibition. 
Thank you for joining us on the Doll Podcast. To find out more about the Barry Art Museum's exhibition, just go to our website, www.dollpodcast.com. We'll have all the links, photographs, and information for you there. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as The Doll Podcast. You can find our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please join us for part two of our podcast next time.